n'est pas se rendre, n'est pas reculer d'un pouce, se faire tuer sur place. Do not surrender. Die on the spot rather than yield an inch. General Robert Nivelle, Verdun, June 1916. Hello, and welcome to the Battle of Verdun podcast episode 9, Fury in the Desert. The Verdun battlefield was now fully enveloped in blazing summer heat, and the previous four months of endless artillery duels had, quite literally, wiped the compressed battle area into an unrecognizable desert. The hills and ravines on both banks of the River Meuse had had every copse of trees and stand of woods first blown to stumps and then ground to wood chips and shell craters. The little hamlets that sprinkled the area were dirty gray smears in the brown earth, now so thoroughly churned it had the consistency of sand. Vegetation no longer grew. The ground itself was so poisoned with explosive and chemical residue that new growth simply withered and died if it wasn't blown apart first. In this desert, there lived, if you can call it that, tens of thousands of men huddled in crude trenches or shell craters. The desert moonscape made map and land reference points useless. Any unit of any size, French or German, was exposed and never made it to their sector of that imaginary place called the front line without casualties. Once there, the survivors dug holes into the earth or pressed themselves against the side of a shell crater as their enemy sought to blast them out with unending pounding from the guns. Units and pieces of units frequently found themselves isolated at Verdun. This was one of survivors' strongest sensory memories of being cut off from the world in this horrific landscape. The men you dived into that shell hole with could be the only faces you'd see for the next several and interminably long days, going crazy in the heat with no water and terrible swarms of flies that flitted from the dead all around you to whatever meager rations you might try to eat. In the desert, both faded Horizon Bleu and dusty Feldgrau suffered terribly in the heat. Water and the getting of it up to the front line was a dangerously urgent issue for Poilu and Franschweine alike, as each liked to kill the other's ration carriers if they caught them in the open. So thirst was everyone's enemy, and a source of madness that could evaporate what discipline remained when water became available. Drinking out of corpse-filled shell holes was not uncommon, come what may afterward. The long dead and recently dead lay and remained everywhere getting buried and chopped up and reburied by the constant artillery. Now, in the summer heat, it was worse than before because they were rotting rapidly, tainting everything with 
the smell of death. A French officer stuck in a dugout under bombardment noted that at first it was the face of a week's dead poilu immured in the earth wall across from him that stared back at him with sightless eyes. The German shell hit his dugout, burying that poilu again, but disinterring part of an also week's dead Algerian tirailleur, noted by his khaki uniform. Hours later, another shell hit the dugout and reburied the dead Algerian with the dirt that had been entombing a third body. How do you walk away from that horror with your mind intact? This, of course, based on if you could walk away at all. So, in the desert, the French and Germans continued hacking away at each other. After June 8th and the fall of Fort Vaux, rain fell in sheets, turning the place into mud and meat soup. On the French side, there was panic now. Once again, General Pétain's line of resistance had been shot full of gaping holes. It was worse than before. Directly to the south of Fort Vaux lay Fort Davan, towards which the Germans were pushing with little success. To the southwest of Vaux was a ridgeline running northwest to southeast, on which were sited the Ouvrage de Théomont, the ruins of Fleury village, and Fort Souvi. The Ouvrage and Fleury were already being fought over savagely by the infantry. For the French 2nd Army defending Verdun and the army group center that overwatched the battlefield, they honestly didn't know if Fort Stavin and Souville could hold. They weren't sure if the French line on the right bank could hold. Even the supremely confident General Robert Nivelle was now ringing up Pétain and higher and asking to evacuate the right bank. Any available French troops were sent to Verdun itself to dig trenches around the ruined town. The Ouvrage de Thiaumont, Fleury Village, Fort Souvi, Ridgeline, was three miles from Verdun itself, and it was really the last defensible terrain feature on the right bank of the Meuse. From here, headed southeast to Verdun, it was open ground. In between the ridge and Verdun was a lower ridgeline on which Forts Belleville and Saint-Michel were sighted. The French had no confidence that these forts could hold out longer than a few minutes. After Belleville and Saint-Michel, it was open all the way to the city itself. So, if Thiaumont, Fleury, and Fort Souvi were taken by the German 5th Army, a now not implausible possibility that French commanders acknowledged, the French 2nd Army would soon be fighting a last-ditch Armageddon in Verdun's streets. The French 2nd Army was being ground down. With Nivelle's takeover and Joffre moving all resources to the Somme battlefront, General Pétain had seen his Noria manpower replenishment system stopped. The same units were being run through the mill on the Meuse for longer tours. Some Poilus had now seen Verdun not once or twice, but even three times. A French infantry division, typically numbering about 15,000 men, could expect at a minimum to take 4,000 casualties during a tour in Verdun. They usually took much more than that. 
General Nivelle, with his constant attacks, was effectively consuming two French divisions every three days. Far more than what Pétain could scramble to replace. Because of this, morale and discipline were correspondingly suffering. On the front, French units were cracking and breaking under the weight of German artillery and infantry attacks, as well as being bombarded by French short or wrongly targeted rounds. Then factor in the heat, the lack of water, and the near total lack of any solid winds since the battle's start in February. Not only were units breaking under the strain, but units were surrendering. And behind the lines, the poilus were sullen. Cases of men refusing to go to the front were popping up. To fix the unraveling discipline, Nivelle took a the beatings will continue until morale improves attitude. The quote I used to open the episode was an order put out by Nivelle shortly after the fall of Fort Vaux, not just a rallying cry to the men. Mind you, these were desperate times. With even Nivelle considering pulling back from the right bank, the French position was getting desperate. But mind you also that to Nivelle, the men under his command were expendable commodities. Orders went out that acts of indiscipline were punishable by death. While I've gone into how tough the French army of World War I could be, there was also a sinister side to it. They weren't as hesitant to execute deserters and perceived dangerous elements. Dangerous elements, like Lieutenants Herdouin and Milan of the 347th Infantry Regiment. These men, previously recognized for bravery in combat, had commanded a company holding Fleury on the 7th and 8th of June. Under terrible bombardment from both the Germans and their own guns, with no resupply, having survived and held off several German attacks, Verdouin and Milan faced a choice. Almost out of ammunition, they could be encircled or slaughtered or taken prisoner. Or they could retreat and live to fight another day. Erdouin ordered his remaining 35 Beffins to pull back from Fleury. Unfortunately, this led to what was left of the 347th Infantry Regiment to break and run back with them. General Nivelle asked why such an ex- unacceptable act would happen. Erdouin and Milan's commanding general rela- replied, He'd take care of it. The two officers were to be executed for cowardice. A few days later, their own surviving men made up the firing squad, and Erdogan was made to give the order to fire himself. Erdogan and Milan's executions were done pour encourager les autres, to encourage the others. They were scapegoats who would be exonerated in 1926 by the French government. And I'm sure Lieutenant Erdogan's widow and now fatherless son took that exoneration happily. These acts were not isolated and uncommon. The combat that saw Erdogan and Milan's 347th Infantry Regiment melt away at Fleury were part of the German 5th Army Chief of Staff General Schmidt von Knobeldorf's continued push 
to break through after taking Fort Vaux. On June 8th, the Germans knew they were close to breaking the French, just as much as the French knew they were close to being broken. On June 8th, German infantry attacked and captured the Ouvrage de Thiomont. Going back all the way to episode 1, these Ouvrages were big pillboxes situated on good ground as part of the defensive ring around Verdun. With Fort Vaux now behind German lines, the Ouvrage de Thiomont, along with Fouquet Village and Fort Sauville, would be the next focal point for much of the killing done at Verdun. French immediately launched counterattacks and retook the super bunker. Losses were horrendous on both sides. Nevertheless, the Germans pounded the Ouvrage again with a hailstorm of artillery, decimating the beleaguered Poilus holding there. Another attack by the infantry, with bobbing coal scuttle helmets and the backs of hobnail boots rushing across the ground. The Poilus fired and left a second layer of Feldgrau carpet on the approaches to the Ouvrage, but in time they were overwhelmed again. The French pulled back to regroup for an immediate counterattack per Nivelle's policy, while the Germans shored up their defenses with the main building materials they had on hand, dirt and dead bodies. Shortly thereafter, the French would again brutally rip the Ouvrage from German hands. Back and forth, the concrete mini-fort would change hands a total of 14 times. Between June 8th and the 12th, the artillery of both sides slammed the contested ridgeline like a thousand massive sledgehammers, with the Germans pushing attacks relentlessly. The crown prince no longer had any heart for the offensive at Verdun, but he was squeezed between the increasingly indifferent von Falkenhayn, who'd also lost interest in Verdun and now had his eyes set on the Somme sector, where the Franco-British buildup was unmistakable. And the Crown Prince's own bloodthirsty glory hound, Chief of Staff, von Knobelsdorf, who enjoyed political coverage provided by the Kaiser himself. Von Knobelsdorf could now see himself as the soon-to-be victor of Verdun. On the other side of the shell-cratered desert, General Pétain at Army Group Center found himself in a similar position, squeezed between those above and below him. Joffre was hoarding all resources for the Somme, and this meant even taking much-needed heavy artillery from the Verdun front. Below Pétain, but with the blessing of Joffre, Nivelle was throwing Frenchmen recklessly at the Germans. Offensive à outrance, attack to excess, had become defend to excess. Any parcel of lost ground had to be immediately retaken. Pétain reacted the same way his beloved Poilus did. He became depressed. The Germans were monstrously relentless. French artillery was losing strength not only to worn-out guns that weren't being replaced, but to improved German counter-battery fire, aided by Draken balloons that were protected by Captain Oswald Bolke and his Jagdstaffel. Conditions on the battlefield were wearing out his soldiers, and Nivelle was shoveling them into the meat grinder like there was no tomorrow. Nivelle had made the infantry reserve situation critical. 
By June 12th, 2nd Army had a brigade left in reserve. That was it. And German attacks at the Ouvrages de Diomont and Fleury kept coming. Schmidt von Knobelsdorf sensed he was close now. 5th Army infantry continued pushing furiously against Fleury. As fast as the French could mow them down, more Bosches appeared to take their place. With every attack, the Germans, with commendable discipline and morale, despite suffering the same as their adversaries, inched forward. French lines strained and began to crack. And just as everyone in the French lines started to close their eyes and cringe as they waited for the next attack that would smash through, they got a lucky break. Not from Mother Nature like they had back in February, but from their allies, the Imperial Russians, thousands of miles away on the Eastern Front. There, on June 4th, after cobbling together a rickety force under the extremely competent General Brusilov, the Russians launched an attack that would forever be known as the Brusilov Offensive. The attack was aimed not at the Germans, but at the equally rickety Austro-Hungarian armies, and it hit the Habsburg forces like an unstoppable avalanche. By June 8th, the commander of Austro-Hungarian forces, General Konrad von Hotzendorf, gritted his teeth and went to von Falkenhayn for help. These two men barely hated each other for reasons that are juicy and fascinating, but unfortunately not relevant to our story. Chaos out east was bad enough that von Falkenhayn reacted in a panic. He transferred three divisions to Russia right away and ordered 5th Army to immediately suspend all operations. With the three divisions moving east, von Falkenhayn felt insecure in France. The Franco-British push on the Somme had to be coming soon, and he needed to be ready for it. But what about Verdun? They were so close, according to Schmidt von Knobelsdorf. So von Falkenhayn spent the next few days hemming and hawing about what to do, while the men under him awaited his orders. The French Second Army, meanwhile, took every second it had to bolster its defenses. Crown Prince Wilhelm took the opportunity to try to permanently end the offensive at Verdun. He met with von Falkenhayn and made the case that German military goals at Verdun were finished. They had done all they could do. But once again, Wilhelm's chief of staff, von Knobelsdorf, went around him, this time with support from Wilhelm's father, the Kaiser himself. Von Falkenhayn agreed on yet another push against Diamant, Fleury, Fort Souville. The date set for it was June 23rd. Von Falkenhayn believed one more push might just do it, and he convinced an ever more doubtful Kaiser by glossing over just how heavy German losses had become. Von Knobelsdorf was also talking good game about how he was going to break through, and that the Kaiser should be there for the victory parade. If Fifth Army could capture that ridge, Verdun would finally turn into a German victory. Once they could get their artillery set up on that ridge, the men of the 5th would be unstoppable. 
to ensure victory, von Knobelsdorf would attack on a narrow front of six kilometers. General von Delmenzingen's elite Alpendivision, brought to Verdun for this attack, would be in the lead. Von Knobelsdorf also had an ace up his sleeve. Thousands upon thousands of special artillery shells, each marked with a green cross on the casing. On June 21st, German guns opened up on the ridgeline as soon as evening fell. The bombardment continued all through the next day, churning the earth and the defending Poilus without pause. On June 22nd, a hot summer night with no wind, the bombardment suddenly stopped. And for the first time in a long time, many of the surviving Poilus jerked their heads to something they had not experienced in a long, long time. Silence. An awesome and terrifying silence. But some noticed the silence wasn't complete. There was the whistle of thousands of shells hurtling high overhead, headed towards the rear where French artillery was pounding away and giving hell back at the hated Bosch. Then the French guns fell silent, and the Biffin noted a foul smell in the... Gas! Gas! French artillerymen at their guns struggled to get their protective masks on. Those men who managed to get their masks on still began to cough, choke, and then collapse. Within a short time, French gun crews behind the six-kilometer attack zone were nearly wiped out. In the still summer night, the gas created a persistent cloud that hung in the area and stretched deadly tentacles down the valley into the streets of Verdun. This was von Knobelsdorf Ace. The green cross shells contained a new and incredibly deadly chemical weapon named Phosgene. It had been designed to purposely defeat French masks, and it had succeeded wildly. Phosgene not only killed men, it also killed pack animals, bringing up supplies and thus shattered French resupply efforts. Phosgene killed any struggling vegetation in the area. It killed bugs. It killed anything that drew oxygen for breath. It was just the latest horror to introduce itself at Verdun. And not to be a Pollyanna, but one bright spot that Phosgene provided was that it also slaughtered the battlefield's fly population. So for a few days, the Buffin and Bosch alike were spared the torment of swarms of flies that descended on everything. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it was still terrible. A little while after the firing of the Phosgene shells, the Germans opened back up with regular artillery. The barrage lasted until 5 a.m. on the 23rd, when the pounding shifted and hordes of Germans left their forward position shell holes and poured into the explosive-soaked French lines. To the embattled Poilu, to the tired but determined Franschweiner, it was a new battle that each would try to survive as best he could. Surviving would mean killing the enemy, if any were left, and a lot of luck, 
So to the average soldier on the ground, it would be a tougher day than most because the stakes were higher. The commanders of both sides had a better picture and knew more about the stakes for both the French 2nd Army and the German 5th Army. But fate would deem the 23rd day of June 1916 as the climax of the Battle of Verdun. Here's how it went down. The Germans attacking that day totaled 30,000 men along the six kilometers of front, led by crack units of the Alpen Division. The first wave, up until then crouching in their holes, bounded up and out at 5 a.m. Seconds later, the reserves were up and rushing behind them. The point was to hit the weakened French with overwhelming force. The hordes encountered no forward posts from the French as they ran across no man's land. The men in these positions having abandoned their posts. They quickly slammed into the French 129th and 130th divisions. These two units had been under constant bombardment for the last two days with no resupply of water, food, or ammunition. They cracked with a whole unit of elite chasseurs surrendering in mass at the Ouvrage de Diamant. French morale was getting into a state for serious concern when chasseurs started surrendering. Remember, Lieutenant Colonel Drian had led chasseurs at the Bois de Carbes back in February. On the French left, the Ouvrage de Diamant fell. Von Delmenzingen's men of the Alpen Division kept moving, now going for, for the Ouvrage de Froidterre, about 1,500 meters to the southwest. The Germans reached and encircled it until the 140 Frenchmen inside opened up with machine guns and one rapid-firing 75. the 75. Within minutes, the gun had blazed out over 175 millimeter shells shredding Germans in the open. Survivors threw themselves into the smoking earth. To the right of Froidterre was an underground command bunker called Quatre Cheminées, four chimneys, for the four ventilation shafts that stuck out of the ground over it. The Germans surrounded the bunker as well and tried to ventilate the Frenchmen inside it by tossing grenades down the shafts. To the east of Quatre Cheminées, the Bavarian Live Regiment and the 2nd Prussian Jaegers hit the ruins of Florhi village. With the Jaegers that day was a young lieutenant named Friedrich Paulus. Yes, that one, the Stalingrad one. Behind the Bavarians and Prussians, other men were manhandling 24 guns across the terrain. These guns would provide immediate fire support once the village was taken. The Poilus at Fleury melted away or surrendered. By 9 a.m., ownership of the broken bricks and remaining walls of the hamlet had been violently transferred to the German 5th Army. Hundreds of battered and demoralized Frenchmen were streaming back through German lines. Very quickly, Nivelle and Pétain above him understood what was going on. Tout allait craquer. Everything was breaking. Within a few hours, the Bosch had pushed forward an entire mile. 
some two and a half kilometers. You know, for Verdun, that was amazing. General Pétain started to panic now, although he never showed it to his staff. But he did call up General de Castelnau to tell him the Germans were only 1,200 meters from the forts Bellevue and Saint-Michel Ridge, and that 2nd Army was in danger of having its artillery overrun and lost if they didn't start evacuating the right bank. The Germans were two and a half miles from Verdun now. Behind German lines, von Knobelsdorf had ordered regiments to get their flags ready for the coming victory march through the ruined town. As if to underscore Beton's concerns, the Germans began to fire long-shot bursts of machine gun fire into the streets of Verdun. They were indeed very close. While frontline French units had disintegrated along the six-kilometer attack front, the Germans had failed to obliterate the units on the flanks. So while the Phosgene gas had caused a devastating 1,600 casualties to the artillerymen directly behind the contested area, the gunners to either side had survived as well as anyone at Verdun could. These gunners on the flanks now had Germans out in the open and overextending themselves in a salient. You really couldn't ask for better targets. French artillery began its deadly work. Guns pounded and shells screamed into the battle zone relentlessly. The ruins of Fleury came in under an especially brutal barrage. Nivelle and his subordinates scrambled to plug the cracks in the tearing line. Units were thrown into the fight, platoons, companies, and battalions rushing to fill the holes. At Diomont, with the Germans laying flat under the murderous French fire, a new unit of chasseurs charged and body-slammed the Bavarians out of the ouvrage. At Fleury, a similar French counterattack was thrown at the Germans, who were now hastily dug in inside the village. The fighting was nightmarish, with both Bosch and Poilu shooting each other down in droves as shells screamed down on them like the end of the world. The attack failed, and the counter-counter-attack knocked the French back even more. But the fighting at Fleury continued. More Poilus moved up. On the brown of the desert battlefield, amid bursts of dirty orange flames and thick black smoke, clusters of men in dusty horizon blue surged forward desperately, rifles in arms and at the ready, Machine gun teams bent over by the weight of their Hotchkiss M1914 gun and ammunition stumbled amongst them. Suddenly, the hammer of a machine gun to the front, and the first groups of Poilus crashed to the ground with blood bursting from holes in their bodies. Everyone else instinctively dropped. Up ahead, sticking up and just visible through the smoke, dark shapes with unmistakable coal scuttle helmets. Rifles cracked. One of the Hotchkiss machine guns hammered back. Most of the Bosch helmets dropped out of sight, but here and there a direct hit would send a red mist up or a helmet would fall forward and stay there. With the machine gun team keeping German heads down, the surviving Poilus clambered up and over the lip of their shell craters at their officers' commands. Instantly, the Bosch fire scythed into them again, with man after man dropping to the ground. But the attack surged forward, the bell rifles leading with bayonets fixed. 
and in seconds, the surviving French were at the forward Bosch holes and shooting at anything that moved. Germans that ran, Germans that stayed. In the heat of the battle, even some Germans who put their hands up in the air. As artillery started coming in dangerously close, those were 75s, friendlies, firing too short. The remaining men looked around briefly. They'd pushed the Bosch out and back a few hundred meters. Hurriedly, Frenchmen stacked the newly dead Germans against the forward-facing side of their hole or length of trench. One of the machine gun teams laid the barrel of its gun across the back of a dead German, resting half in and half out of a shell hole. The Bosch would be back in minutes to push them back out. Despite the best efforts of the French, by the end of June 23rd, the ruins of Fleury fell. To the southeast of the village, the Germans reached Fort Souvie. But the French line, stretched to the limit and paper thin, did not break open. General Pétain, deeply pessimistic, nevertheless put on his best face when he told his staff, We have not been lucky today, but we shall be tomorrow. Joffre would have had to grunt at the shockingly calm performance. French Second Army had seen its critical sector shoved back over two and a half kilometers in one day while losing 9,000 men dead or wounded. Another 4,000 had been taken prisoner. Morale was sinking, but miraculously, the line had held together. It prompted Robert Nivelle to issue his famous statement of the day, Il ne passeront pas. They shall not pass. On the German side, von Knobelsdorf and the Kaiser did not get the chance to conduct their victory parade. What they got instead was thousands of their men stuck in a salient in the summer heat with no supplies. Kaiser packed up his things and went back to the army HQ at Charleville mezier without saying much to anyone. June 23rd would be the last decent chance for the 5th Army to break through. Next day, June 24th, artillery once again roared and shells crashed down on German positions. But these trench lines were near the River Somme, and 1,400 British guns rumbled the earth so fiercely they could be heard across the channel. The British relief effort had begun. The Battle of the Somme was underway. Von Falkenhayn could now panic and freak out as the long-awaited Allied counteroffensive had arrived. He suspended all operations at Verdun again, effective immediately. While the 5th Army was receiving its orders to halt all operations, General Mongin, on the other side, argued for the exact opposite. Despite the debacle at Douaumont the previous month, where half his division had been wiped out, he was then sacked. Mongin had been brought back and promoted to command Second Corps. With even more men under his command, he was ready to get out on the battlefield and say it with his chest. But now was the time to hit the Germans. While their gains were still being consolidated and they had wedged themselves into that exposed salient. 
Nivelle, as usual, always ready to authorize an attack, agreed. Mongin launched his corps at the ridgeline eight times over the next week. To little gain other than to bleed the Germans out. The Germans opposite him gave Mongin the fight he was looking for. They fought back as hard as it was given to them. June proved to be a hard month for the Poilus of the 2nd Army, and its highest month for losses. Another 67,000 men killed, wounded, missing. The Germans lost 52,000 of their own. The bleeding white strategy had long since been shot to pieces, like everything else on the battlefield. But at 5th Army HQ, General von Knobelsdorf had not yet had enough. Very quickly, he would scheme for the next push, the one that would really, no, really, really break through this time. And that's for the next episode. For some admin notes, I have put up a PayPal donate button on the website, battleofverdunpodcast.com. Uh, Donations are completely voluntary and are to help defray the cost of the website host and podcast servers. Maybe for some beer money too. Quite honestly, about half the time when I'm recording, there's a not empty glass of lager or ale to assist in production. So I'm just throwing that out there. More beer means more podcast episodes. I'm kidding. But if you do enjoy these podcasts and want to show it through a donation in the amount you wish, it will be very greatly appreciated. As always, you can check out the podcast on the website or on Stitcher, FeedBurner, and Tumblr. There's also a Facebook page, and I'd like to say thanks again to listener James for the feedback. Greatly appreciate it, as always. To everyone this week, I'd like to say Joyeux Noël, Frohe Weihnachten, and Merry Christmas. Hope you all have a safe and happy holiday. Take care. America, we are endowed by our creator with certain unalienable rights, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. At Grand Canyon University, we believe in equal opportunity, and the American dream starts with purpose. By honoring your career calling, you impact your family, your friends, and your community. The pursuit to serve others is yours. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu.